Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your monthly delve into the research that might be changing practice and your chance to nerd out on some of the methodology along the way. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and this week uh, it's great to welcome back Joe Ross onto the pod. Joe, welcome back. Could I get you to introduce yourself? Hey, Duncan, it's great to be back. Uh, it's been a beautiful summer. Uh, I'm Joe Ross. I'm a professor of medicine and public health at Yale. And more importantly, I'm an associate research editor at the BMJ. The most important thing, absolutely. And uh, as always, we're joined by Juan Franco. Juan, can I get you to introduce yourself? Hi, Duncan. Uh, hi, Joe. I'm Juan Franco. I'm a researcher at the Heinrich Heine University here in Germany and the editor-in-chief of BMJ Evidence-Based Medicine. And you're both clinicians as well? Yes, I'm a family doctor too. <laughs> so you're getting both perspectives here. And obviously we would usually have Helen here, but it's her time to have a bit of a holiday. So we'll be welcoming her back next time. There's lots to cover today. We're going to talk about antidepressants and individual patient data. Uh, some industry sponsorship of cost-effectiveness analyses. Uh, we'll be talking about pandemics, the new pandemic of monkeypox. And of course, it wouldn't be talk evidence without some COVID in there as well. So first up, earlier this month, we published the research paper Response to Acute Monotherapy for Major Depressive Disorder in Randomized Placebo-Controlled Trials Submitted to the US Food and Drug Administration. And the important bit in this is it's an individual patient data analysis. Now, Juan, I think this is one of your things, uh, IPDs. Um, so do you want to tell us a little bit about what's going on here? Well, um, first of all, when when I when you read the title, and most of the readers may say, "Well, why another analysis of the data of antidepressants?" And especially there there has been so many good, uh, well conducted uh, systematic reviews and meta analysis on antidepressants that you. Uh, the value that this study adds is that they use individual participant data. Um, this uh, this type of analysis allows the, the the thorough investigation of the multiple variables of each of the individual participants rather than the, the aggregate data of each of the studies that a traditional meta-analysis uh, uses. So, um, and therefore, this group of researchers have managed to uh, unveil some additional um, nuances as to what are the treatment responses, what are the effects, uh, uh, the changes in and depressive symptoms in both active treatments and placebo. So a bunch of information there that they've got. What did they find? So what did they find? Uh, they included 232 randomized controlled trials uh, using the data that the drug developers submitted to the FDA between 1979 and 2016 um, with data of over 73,000 adults and uh, considered the primary outcome, the depressive symptoms measured by the traditional Hamilton rating scale for depression. They found that the uh, change uh, between uh, uh, the, the change in symptoms between placebo and 
uh, active treatment with antidepressants is one, 1.75 points uh, with confidence interval of 1.63 to 1.86. Uh, if you the, the the paper has a lot of sub uh, uh, sub analysis and uh, additional um, tables that the reader might want to explore. Um, but what I also find found interesting that they um, managed to explore with this individual participant data is the, the patterns of response of 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 those who had a minimal. Uh, non-specific and a large response to antidepressant, which is something that clinicians notice that in, in their daily practice. But what they notice in their daily practice, it is interesting to see that it also happens in randomized controlled trials. So when you compare the the the, the tr differences in the treatment effects of the active arm versus placebo, you also see that some patients do have um, a more Im important um, response to, to treatment than others. And that is more interesting for the clinician rather than seeing that the average response across a, a heterogeneous population. What the um, researchers highlight, and I think it's interesting, is that you are yet to identify what are the best predictors of those who would have the, the largest response to treatment, which is the uh, challenging uh, from uh, in, the, in the way we think of how we select the patients in which we have the discussions on starting treatment. Yeah, Juan, this is a totally fascinating study. And obviously, there's a lot here for a reader to chew on and, and dig through. I think one of the interesting parts um, that's worth noting is, you know, the this was authored by a group of investigators both at the FDA, who are, of course, really interested in differentiating a active uh, interventions treatment effect versus the placebo effect, working with investigators uh, at Harvard Medical School who run the program and placebo studies. So they're really trying to disentangle what to expect when you initiate treatment, be it active tr treatment or a placebo treatment. And, you know, they find actually, um, on average, the treatment effect is a little bit larger among patients who get active treatment. But it's only marginally larger. And there are a lot of people who respond. There's not as many people who have large responses uh, to a placebo uh, intervention as opposed to the active drug intervention, but there are a lot of people who have uh, small and medium-sized responses. The other thing that I think is really interesting about this paper is which uh, drugs had uh, the sort of on average larger uh, treatment effects of the drug versus placebo. And those are mostly medications we don't use very much anymore, like the uh, tricyclic antidepressants like amitriptyline and clomipramine, along with the SNRI venlafaxine, which is, of course, used a lot uh, now today. But th this is, I think, just um, has a lot of sort of important nuance that readers may uh, want to dig through a bit. Yeah, in interestingly enough, when you mentioned those two tricyclic antidepressant that perhaps those are not uh, the first line of treatment when you think about depression. Uh, the reason why they were switched to the newer antidepressants is because of the profile of adverse events and not necessarily because they were less effective. And I think that this uh, a new analysis sort of highlights that. Of course, this new analysis is not trying to focus on the safety question, which would also be fascinating to 
have an APD on that, right? Absolutely. The the other thing that I'll point out about this, Duncan, before you cut me off, is uh, the you know they use the data that had been submitted to the FDA, and we're going to come back to this issue when we talked about talk about that cost effectiveness paper because. So you, some of our listeners may not remember, about 15 years ago, Eric Turner, who is now uh, at Oregon Health Sciences University but had been a medical officer at the FDA, published a seminal paper uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine that compared treatment effects in the data when estimated using the data that had been submitted to the FDA as opposed to the data that had been published in the papers, finding very large differences a, a, you know, a clear both publication um, bias as well as a selective, you know, selective publication bias and a selective outcome reporting bias in the published papers that favored the treatments um, manufactured by, by industry. Whereas when you looked at the treatment effects estimated using the data submitted to the FDA, the overall general effectiveness of antidepressants seemed to be much less. And so this paper builds on that, obviously leveraging the IPD to do this active uh, drug versus placebo analyses. But it's worth noting, you know, the sort of seminal paper that Eric Turner did way back when. I had a very basic question about this paper. Um, the outcome, the, the, their analysis um, ended up with something called a random effects mean difference. And I didn't know what that was. Could either of you explain that? Well, so what they, they did is because some of the trials used different uh, endpoints, uh, they standardized them to create a standardized mean difference between the two arms uh, for the, the endpoint as it was ascertained, adjusted for age, sex, um, and baseline severity. So that's just kind of a fancy meta-analytic approach to allowing you to compare trials uh, that might have some heterogeneous features. That's how I would describe it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess that the, the, the if we want to go to down the rabbit hole, and I hope no <laughs> statistician is listen to, the, uh, to this podcast. Actually, That's I why I stopped okay. when I stopped. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you want to be slaughtered I, online. I don't want Richard Riley to listen and tell me how wrong I am. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send this to him, get him to peer review it before. But no, I, I think that as, uh, um, uh, a, a safer explanation that I've heard without getting to the nitty gritty part of it. <laughs> This oh, is Juan telling me that I am wrong, actually. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's just uh, to, is the assumption underlying the random uh, effects model is that perhaps you don't, when you pull all the data, you don't assume that you will have uh, a single effect across. So and you assume that there will be uh, uh, various effects and you're trying to get what are the distribution of effects uh, of, of the interventions and... Uh, and 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 you acknowledge that in your uncertainty. So that would be my non-statistician explanation. Of that. I'll also just know um, one one last thing about this paper that I think listeners might find interesting, which is you know they looked at data from a long period of time, and there's been rising sort of speculation that the placebo effect is stronger today than it was, but they don't identify any differential sort of placebo effect over time. The, the, it seems to be pretty consistent over the years. And also there, these, some of these studies did study children um, and they find a much smaller 
uh, marginal effect of active drug versus placebo in kids. So that, that's also just worth noting for people who want to go take a look at the paper. So Joe, you trailed this already, um, but you've wanted to talk about uh, a paper that we published last month, actually, whilst uh, whilst you're away, um, looking at industry sponsorship of cost effectiveness uh, analyses. Um, this is a very talk evidence topic. So uh, did the did the outcome not surprise us? Yeah. Well, you know, so you know, it it's not going to surprise many. You know. Sp- just to start a little bit back at the basics, right? So sponsorship bias is the idea that uh, the published literature is going to favor um, industries' products in papers funded by industry as opposed to uh, you know when it's studied independently. So you're more likely to see that the published literature favors a general product or, or a point of view. And in this case, um, they were looking at uh, the results of cost-effectiveness analyses. We've seen this, of course, uh, and I mentioned it like in the Eric Turner paper for you know uh, trials of antidepressants are more likely to show beneficial results for the antidepressant when it's funded by industry. In this case, what they looked at was um, all of the uh, cost-effectiveness analyses that have been um, identified by um, the Tufts University uh, based in Boston, their cost-effectiveness analysis registry, which is a really comprehensive registry of all the cost-effective analyses that have ever been reported. And they look to see um, whether those that have been uh, sponsored by industry are more likely to uh, essentially determine or estimate that the interventions studied are cost-saving or cost-effective. So that's what you know, of course, uh, uh, they they looked at and they used um, what they what we typically think about in cost effectiveness is something called uh, the ICER, the incremental cost effectiveness ratio. And we say, you know, based on our quality of life metric, uh, we're going to use a threshold of you know fifty or a hundred thousand dollars per um, quality of life. Uh, saved or benefited depending on uh, how um, what the outcome is uh, for use and so um, they looked at all these studies they find uh, there's there's obviously a lot of them I think there was more than 10,000 uh, analyses like this included in the registry uh, they end up focusing on 8,000 that had all the information that they needed about 30 percent of which were sponsored by industry and when you look over time uh, I mean, when you look at the whole sample, what you find is that the likelihood that the intervention is found to be cost saving. So it both it just it, it costs less um, than the intervention it's being compared to was over 25 percent among the industry sponsored analyses and less than 20 percent among the cost saving. I mean, among the non-industry supported analyses. And then when you focus on those that report an incremental cost effectiveness ratio, the ICER, of uh, zero to 50,000, those were more likely, twice as likely, in fact, uh, to be uh, sponsored by industry as opposed to non-industry sponsored. And the non-industry sponsored analyses were less likely uh, to find the interventions to be uh, cost effective using these common thresholds. So this is just a good reminder of the sort of bias that still pervades in the medical literature. Um, and these uh, cost-effectiveness analyses have a, 
you know, they're, they're relied upon by health technology assessment agencies and governments in deciding kind of what to cover, uh, what to pay for, how to allocate their healthcare dollars. Um, and it's really important uh, that we have the sort of best data at hand that's not biased when making these decisions. So obviously, publication bias was what led to clinical trial registration and the fact that now FDA or other regulators won't um, consider your paper if it wasn't prospectively registered. Is there a similar move? Is something already in place there for cost-effectiveness trials? It's a great suggestion, actually. Um, it, there, it's not yet uh, on the move in, the way, in that way, um, but it probably should be, where we think about how to require analyses like this, observational studies, to pre-specify their endpoints of interest, the data they're going to use, how they're going to approach the question, how they're going to define the endpoint. All of those issues um, would be best, you know, we would be better served as a kind of research enterprise if they were clearly located, you know, in a single source, pre-specified so that anyone can read it prior to the work even being started. In this case, they're relying on those analyses that are reported, right? And the Tufts finds them, and then they're looking to see kind of what happens. And so there is this publication bias at play. For all we know, when industries identified negative or unfavorable uh, ICERs, you know, the, co the incremental cost effectiveness ratios, they just didn't publish them. Um, and so having some type of, uh, you know, pre-specification registration matters. This has been found true to be for trials, you know, when the FDA uh, imposed the legal requirements that companies had to, that um, companies of FDA regulated products had to register and report their results. We have found that when comparing those uh, trials um, to, their, to the data that was submitted to the FDA, not unlike that antidepressant paper, they're much more likely to be accurate. They're much more likely to be registered. They're much more likely to report the results as they were submitted to the FDA. So, so this kind of trial pre-specification, study pre-specification matters and would benefit uh, cost-effectiveness analyses also. Yeah, and, uh, and, and if you think about the problems and the solutions, uh, I'm perhaps more ex skeptical that, that pre-registration pre will solve this. Uh, I would like to highlight one difference. So this study used used data from um, from two types of there's two types of economic evaluations. Those are model based. That means that you create someone in a in an office gathers data from multiple sources and creates a model and try to tries to ascertain whether an intervention is cost-effective or not. And those are trial-based, or perhaps they're called piggyback. That means you have a primary study in which you collate all the data from studies for, for the cost, and then you try to figure out whether the intervention is cost-effectiveness. As you can imagine, if you have a, a primary study collects the data from costs, that perhaps, if done rigorously and pre-registration applies to that, and seconding uh, uh, Joe, uh, Joe's point, uh, I think those, those those studies might be less susceptible to manipulation and bias. But if you look at the sample they use, nine, or nearly 90%, I think, yeah, 90% uh, 
are model modeling studies. Uh, so these modeling studies are much more susceptible to bias because what are the sources you're picking up to def- determine the effectiveness? What are the sources you're using to determine the ut- utilities, the quality of life, adjusted years? And, and all of the assumptions that you put into a model are most susceptible. So in that case, perhaps I think that there's more of a point that perhaps we shouldn't trust models by the industry, I mean, if, if and if you look at the subgroup analysis they did uh, on on Figure Two, actually most of the the uh, of the exagger- sort of exaggeration of coverage effectiveness comes from the model based studies. So, if, if we if if you're a government agency and you want to assess cost effectiveness. If you ha- if you if you want a model based analysis, should you give the um, industry control of how that model is specified and what type of outputs may, they may give, or uh, and and that's sort of more like regulatory question. And I think that there's a lot of room to 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 discuss on whether it is truly acceptable to as to use the models uh, provided by industry primarily as a source to for decision making. Hmm. Call me cynical, but um, cost isn't this sort of, you know, extrinsic, measurable factor. It's not a, you know, that's something that industry comes up with. And if I was industry, where something had a clear threshold for co- to, to reach for cost benefit, I think my product would be priced just below whatever that threshold was. So I, I'm just wondering, you know, how that works in in, in this, where the, the cost bit of it come in. Duncan, you're so cynical. You, sh- you, should, you should come <laughs> look at the prices here in the US because I don't think they have anything to do with the cost effectiveness ratio. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and most cost effectiveness analysis will have a, a sensitivity analysis by the the cost the effect of cost cost and price and there's this whole difference between what is called co- co- costs and prices right so the the two different concepts but and and ideally you would have to have that explicitly laid out in model but as as you as you mentioned if you turn up the dial of course, or turn down the dial in a model it might look prettier and uh, and and that sort of changes what decisions you end up doing get Make it. Hmm. More evidence yeah. to be a healthy skeptic. <laughs> so talk evidence has been about COVID, but it seems that there is a new um, infectious disease spreading around. Um, Monkeypox has been in the news a lot and though endemic in Africa uh, for a long time, um, it's kind of come into Europe and North America and suddenly there's all this attention on it. And uh, we published some research looking um, almost like a series of of case studies. And Juan, you were going to tell us a little bit about, uh, about what that says. So yes, uh, uh, I feel like uh, I'm, I'm I'm reliving my years of studying case series as, uh, at the university when 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 you looked at the traditional pyramid of evidence. I'm going to say traditional between 
air quotes that no one's looking at the moment uh, because uh, and and mentioned that, in, that when when you're talking about case series one of the main uh, things examples they bring up uh, in, in medical school is well case series are very important in the 1980s for example the a case the pre, the, the the first case series describing Kaposi sarcoma in people with, in, infected with this new virus etc and um and when I read this uh, case series, it brought uh, reminiscence on so many levels um, uh, that we might be able to discuss with some new ones later on. But um, I think it's uh, a very interesting uh, a descriptive case series in uh, um, a clinic in the south of London of 197 patients who were tested positive for monkeypox. Uh, these type of studies are so important because uh, whereas monkeypox has been around for a while, this new outcome break uh, that uh, is quite worrying uh, across the globe. Um, ne we need to understand whether the way uh, and the presentation of, of cases it is as traditionally has been in endemic cases in Africa or whether there are distinct uh, characteristics that we should know. As, and especially it's important as clinicians to raise awareness of how um, um, monkeypox may present, uh, but of course we'll we'll have to also be uh, alerted to to ongoing publications on the on on how this may change in time. But at the moment, this case series of 197 patients described uh, from May and July, who presented primarily due to uh, with dermatological uh, lesions like uh, um, postules and other or other variants. Um, and um, and they uh, so all of them presented to uh, and 295 were tested and 197 were tested positive. Uh, those who were testing negative had other uh, differential diagnosis that is also important as a clinician to to highlight. For example, syphilis or herpes that they also um, have sim lesions that may confuse uh, position, patients and clinicians. So it's always to keep, uh, important to keep that in mind. Um, out of the 197, 70 were HIV positive and 55 of those were uh, with a suppressive therapy with that ne negative viral load. Um, and out of the 197, 196 identified as gay or, or men who have sex with men. Interestingly enough, the, most of the lesions were in the genital or perianal region, and uh, nearly two-thirds of patients had systemic fever, uh, symptoms such as fever, and two-thirds of those who had systemic symptoms had those symptoms before the lesions appear. So that's very interesting because most people, uh, perhaps in reading the news in the media, they think that the, the they expect the lesions to appear first. And no, it might not be the case in most cases. Um, uh, fortunately, only a minority of patients were admitted to a hospital, but it also raises awareness of how severe the case may be. Uh, the, the pain may be quite intractable. Uh, the main reasons for hospitalizations of those 25 individuals in this case series were due to pain or penile edema, and they were treated with different types of medications, but some uh, in, in one of the cases, they think they required uh, fentanyl, which is a very strong medication for pain. So it's also 
also very important to to be aware that 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 the pain might might be a very serious uh, consideration in these cases. Um, this case series ends ends with um, with a series of of of, ca- of description of particular cases uh, of severe penile edema, bacterial infection upon uh, super infection on, on the lesions, and other complications such as rectal perforations and abscess. Uh, um, and uh, but fortunately, those those were the minority of cases. Um, I do encourage everyone to read it. Um, they, it, it also has an, um, an sort of an appendix with pictures. Uh, um, yeah, they're they're a little bit chalking some of these pictures. So reader beware. Yeah, well, I think that was a great summary. I mean, th- I, this is it is funny to sort of be having have a case series in the BMJ, right? Um, it seems unusual. Usually, we're you know, we rely on much more rigorous evidence when uh, trying to help people better understand kind of what works and what doesn't work or how to take better care of our patients. In this case, you know, you know, monkeypox is it's new, it's spreading rapidly, and there's a lot of questions and uncertainty. This case series, you know, of people who were identified as having the infection in London is actually really consistent with broader numbers. Uh, you know, I think the numbers coming out of the CDC, and the World Health Organization, you know, found that you know the majority, almost 99% of cases are in men. Uh, among those who have information about sexual partners, it's mostly, uh, I think, 97% men who have sex with men, and this suggests the sort of close contact needed for spread. Um, there's a lot of you know rumors around on the internet around uh, you know how it's spread. Some people even have suggested it comes from the COVID vaccine, which is patently absurd. It, it can, you know, it is found on surfaces, but I think, um, you know, in, that's a very limited chain of transmission. You know, perhaps, you know, you know, when when the experts, people who have far more experience about it than me talk about it, you know, they, they say that is not going to be the reason um, this infection spreads. And so, you know, I think it's important to learn. It's a very painful, painful viral infection. And so, um, you know, identifying it and stopping that chain of transmission early is, is what's key. Um, Juan, as you said, uh, and Joe said, the um, the majority of cases were in men who have sex with men. Yes, uh, I, do, all the, uh, I think this could be read in a number of ways. So we um, there's sometimes confusion when we talk about uh, who's been affected compared to what are the ways the virus is transmitted. The virus is not, um, disc- does not discriminate by how people identify or what people chooses, who, who people chooses to have sex with or have close contact. They, it, it, there's, there are mechanisms, biological mechanisms by which viruses transmit. So um, whereas the description of cases is in, 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 in gay men in this case series, we must be aware that these people are showing up and getting tested because there's a public health messaging saying, based on the initial cases, that uh, a gay men should be aware of the situation. And actually, if you look at the data, 295 went to get tested and 197 got a positive result. Which, if you think about what is the positivity rate, right? This positivity rate is so high, it makes me think about how many cases are we not detecting, and especially in perhaps in other populations that are having uh, close contact or sexual interactions, that perhaps because of the framing of the 
the gay men messaging, uh, they, they might not be getting the right diagnosis. And, uh, um, and that's one angle of the situation. The other angle has to do with how messaging around prevention comes around and how further efforts to reduce the morbidity, for example, how uh, the vaccine is being rolled out in subpopulations. Um, I think that uh, public health officials have a lot of challenge, have great challenges in, in trying to think of focused protection for those that are most affected at the moment, but at the same time, try to avoid stigmatization and, 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 and further negative messaging when we are pretty much we are sure that the the virus is not targeting a specific population, but it's just distributed in that cluster for the moment. I mean, what you're saying is it's nothing inherent about the kind of sex yeah. that people are having. It's to do with the the fact that it's within a population who yeah. have a closed, you know, circuit. Of- And let's wrap this up with a bit of uh, COVID. In the UK, uh, we've just approved the use of a new bivalent Moderna vaccine, which will have the original strain of COVID mRNA in it, um, but also uh, a specific mRNA targeting the Omicron BA1 strain. And I think this is interesting, Joe, given uh, one of the papers that you were going to tell us about, about fourth doses. Well, you know, I think we we should do like just a quick update, right, for folks on COVID. It's still here. We're still in the pandemic. (laughs) We're still managing this. Um, I want to start actually with um, just a quick summary of a a paper um, before we get to that one about the fourth dose that talks about, that uses some UK data uh, to better understand um, the deaths uh, and risk of, you know, of COVID uh, in the Omicron period versus the Delta period. Because I think all of us anecdotally, and one of the reasons why it feels like many people have kind of just moved on, uh, is that uh, it seems like the disease is now less severe. And so, you know, this great group in the UK that's been doing a lot of leading research, trying to better understand and characterize the risks associated with COVID, took a a one-month period of time when both uh, variants were circulating, Uh, December uh, 2021. They identified over a million people who tested positive uh, over that time and for whom the actual uh, information on which variant um, they were uh, infected with was available. And they found that the risk of COVID-19 death, so they don't have um, kind of everything else, they're just related to death, uh, was about two-thirds lower um, after adjustment for all the sort of various confounders. Um, and so that's reassuring, right, uh, that that the risk of COVID-19 when infected with the Omicron variant is much less. Of course, variants keep changing, things keep moving, and that's the reason why um, the companies are moving forward to uh, adjust the vaccine to include the new variants um, in, a better, in an effort to better protect the patients uh, and the broader public. And so that, that moves us to that uh, really interesting study that looks at the effectiveness of a fourth dose among a particularly susceptible uh, population of long-term care uh, residents in Ontario, Canada. And what they did uh, is used a 
kind of a standard vaccine effectiveness uh, research design with observational data like this is called a test negative design. And they identified more than 13,000 residents who had uh, tested positive uh, and 205,000, almost 206,000 who had tested negative. And what they found was that the marginal effectiveness of having been given a fourth dose of the mRNA vaccine uh, was about uh, 20% against infection. So not very much more, but a little bit. Um, against getting infected. It was about 30% uh, sort of effectiveness against symptomatic infection. So people were 30% less likely to have a symptomatic infection and a 40% uh, uh, protective against severe outcomes, including um, admission uh, and or death. So um, it does seem like the fourth dose in this case had much less of an impact than what we was observed, uh, obviously for the original vaccination series and even for the booster series. We know that the booster did wane over time and waned um, in the Omicron era. There was a, a you know a big RCT that that demonstrated that. Um, and what we don't know is if, is it just because Omicron is less severe, and so it's much when something is less severe, it's much harder to demonstrate benefit uh, in response to it, or is it just that continuing to use that original uh, vaccination that was you know, essentially built to combat the wild type uh, variant is just no longer really working. So I, th- I think this is a great prompt um, you know, for the importance of both research like this, to the evaluation of the new, of the new uh, boosters as they're coming out, ideally in RCTs to start, uh, just to make sure that um, they're gonna be useful, right? Um, they're they're expensive. They're, they do have some, um, you know, marginal uh, adverse events that are associated with it, and you know, I, they, those have obviously always been um, widely outweighed by their benefits. And so we just need to make sure that that continues to hold true. I second everything you said, Joe. But at the same time, I see that uh, I found very interesting. Uh, the the reason for getting a fourth dose sometimes is to maintain a, a vaccine response rather than upgrading it. And I, I, I th- at least for infection, uh, the the numbers remain quite low. But for but it was reassuring this study that for severe outcomes, the the protection remained high. So at least uh, the, the, there is an interesting debate to so why are we vaccinating? Are we vaccinating to to prevent more infection or 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 to maintain a response for severe outcomes? Uh, of course, in this case, the response, the differential response, is still marginal. Uh, but and 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 this uh, this sort of sets the floor as, as as to what's going to happen when we introduce the the new vaccines. I was just going to ask on it. Um, we know that the two strains of COVID have slightly different etiologies. Delta was, you know got further into your lungs, had a more systemic effect. Um, Omicron is a little bit more upper respiratory. And without knowing what effect that that has on our ability to treat someone with COVID, you know, the effect of the steroids and and everything else, how can we be sure the vaccine is actually having more of a marginal effect? 
could it be a combination of vaccine and treatment and and everything else? Yeah, no, I, I think that's that is obviously possible. I, I don't know or remember if this paper reported on um, the rates of treatment. Uh, you know, with a you know like the Paxlovid-like drugs that are given to people who are at higher risk, um, in order to avoid severe outcomes. And of course, that that is all part of what makes this all the more complicated, right? Which is you know disentangling uh, benefit uh, in the context of oh sort of a medical practice as it's changing. My my gut instinct is that the vaccines are probably even at even with their marginal effectiveness, I think that th- this is probably not mitigated too much by Paxlovid treatment. Um, I think there's a large range of uh, sort of efficacy estimates, and it's really uncertain or sort of remains uncertain. This is another call for more data to be uh, publicly posted and reported on because we still don't have any information on that drug uh, and its effectiveness in a vaccinated population. So, um, Anyways, it's all, you know, TBD, uh, you know, as we do more research and figure out how best to take care of people. So we're nearly at the end of this month's Talk Evidence. Thank you to Joe and Juan for joining us and thank you for listening. If there's anything you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, or you've got comments about what we've been discussing here, then please do get in touch. Visit bmj.com podcasts to find out where you'll find all of our contact details. Or find us on uh, Twitter. Or find us on Twitter. Joe, you're on there? Oh yeah, as is Juan. As is Juan. Yes. Uh, so yeah, go and slide into their DMs and uh, we can talk about whatever you like on the podcast next time. I've added links to everything we've talked about today, and all of those articles are available open access, so go check them out. We'll be back in about a month, hopefully with Helen back in our virtual studio. And uh, we'll get you up to date on all that's been happening in the world of EBM between now and then. Until then, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. Take care out there.